Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it's time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published on July 30th, 2012. It's titled Spotlight on Dennis Ritchie. So who was Dennis Ritchie and what were his contributions to technology? As it turns out, they were many and they were significant. So Chris Paulette and I sit down and talk about this influential technologist. Enjoy. Jonathan and I were talking about topics to record and we thought, you know, we should we should um, talk about uh, one of the most famous or non-famous famous people there are in tech. Yeah, this is a guy who uh, was incredibly influential in technology. In fact, without him, our technological landscape would be totally different as yes. far as computer science goes. And uh, this is, this is of course, the, the late, great Dennis Ritchie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis McAllister Ritchie. Yes. Uh, and, uh, or DMR, as he was sometimes known. Um, he, tragically, Dennis Ritchie passed away last year. And in mm-hmm. fact, he, his, his body was discovered a week after Steve Jobs passed away. Right. And so his death was somewhat eclipsed by Steve Jobs' death because Steve Jobs had a real cult of personality around him. Oh, yeah. For absolutely. various reasons, mm-hmm. right? He, he sort of embodied, he personified, if you will, the, the, corporation of Apple, and so very much was identified with that brand. Now, Dennis Ritchie, his contributions, you could argue, went far beyond Steve Jobs' contributions. In fact, a lot of programmers out there were very much upset that his passing did not receive the same sort of coverage that Steve Jobs did. But Steve Jobs was a much more public figure and um, was, was sort of a marketing genius as well. Not sort of. He was a marketing genius. And whereas Dennis Ritchie was sort of an architect of of what computers do today. And and it was a different two different types of people. Yeah, and doing some research on on uh Dennis Ritchie, I, I feel like that's probably the way he preferred things. He wasn't really the kind of, of public personality type. He wasn't necessarily looking for uh, the public plaudits, um, although I think he probably enjoyed being appreciated by uh, by others. Um, and of course, uh, really, Steve Jobs and Apple wouldn't be where they you know where they were at the time of Steve's uh, passing last year um, without the efforts of Dennis Ritchie and, and many others who worked with him. Very true, very true. And as you say, Dennis Ritchie was a very private man, so was Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs would also put himself out in front of crowds in order to talk about products. That's not yeah. what Dennis Ritchie did. Yeah, Although he, had, he, he did write one of the most famous books in programming. That's that's true. Which that's we will true. get into. Yeah. So uh, Steve had a public face. That's right. Very, very well put. And I have to say that before I really dive into here, I mm-hmm. found one article in particular incredibly informative and touching, really, mm-hmm. about Dennis Ritchie. And there are, there are a lot of articles out there that have been written since his passing. Yes. Uh, but the one in particular that I want to mention, because a lot of my information came from this article, was written by Cade Metz of Wired. Yeah. And it's called Dennis Ritchie the shoulders Steve Jobs stood on. And it's an excellent read. So I highly recommend you go to Wired and check that out uh, before uh, before you turn this podcast off. Write that down because it's a really good article. Yeah, I, uh, I think that um, 
a lot of the uh, articles that came out immediately following Dennis Ritchie's passing uh, had sort of a Steve Jobs connection simply because they passed at that time. Yeah, within there, a week of each other, yeah. Yeah, there there, there wasn't a, a connection connection. Right. Uh, like these guys hung out all the time. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, like, wasn't like Jobs, Waz, and Ritchie all right, yeah. you know, I, I think knocking it was... them back at the local coffee shop. <laughs> no, but it, it, I think there there's a tie-in simply because uh, those two events were – uh, so close together, but um, yeah, let's let's talk about uh, about Dennis here. Uh, he was born September 9th, nineteen forty one, in uh, in New York, Bronxville, New York. Yep, yep. And he was uh, and he passed away in New Jersey in Berkeley Heights on October in October twenty eleven. Yeah, we don't know exactly when yeah, because yeah. his body was found tragically, so we don't know exactly the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, his father was Alistair E. Ritchie, who was a uh, scientist and an authority on. On switching circuit theory. Yes. And he was uh, an employee with Bell Laboratories. Yes. Or Laboratories. <laughs> yes. It's uh, uh, Bell Labs. It, it's funny to me, uh, going uh, going toward the traditional there, he, uh, his father was Alistair and his middle name was MacAllister. So, yeah. Which like, son of Alistair. Exactly. Very well I, done. I liked that. Yes, I did too. Um, and it's one of those just little uh, trivia type facts that you pick up when you're when you're researching someone like that. But yep. uh, nice, nicely done, guys. He, uh, he was an apt student mm-hmm. and he attended Harvard University. He graduated with degrees in physics and applied mathematics. Mm-hmm. And then when he decided to go into graduate school, also at Harvard, he began to work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, Mm -hmm. and he worked in their computer center. And as he worked in the computer center, he became so interested in computer science, he decided that was what he wanted to focus in as opposed to pure mathematics. Yeah. Although the two two fields have a lot in common with one another. And this is uh, this is another illustration of how much uh, how much of an effect that these computer pioneers had um, when he was going, when he had made that decision, he wanted to get into computer science. It wasn't like he said, oh, I'm going to go to uh, to Harvard or MIT and get my computer science degree. There wasn't a computer science degree yeah. at that time. Um, it's thanks to uh, people like these that we have such a, a uh, strong computer science field. And in fact, the, the work they did end up being the, the syllabus for <laughs> for. Those computer science degrees. Yep. I mean, like his his work on the on uh, programming is one of the fundamental uh, foundation blocks for learning about programming and computer science today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So while he uh, is going through this graduate work, he ends up getting a PhD from Harvard. His mm-hmm. dissertation was called program structure and computational complexity, which was something he really did excel at. That became a focus of his. While he was there, uh, working through this, he got a um, a, a request, a, a recruitment request mm-hmm. from Sandia National Laboratories. Aha! And Sandia National Laboratories was a uh, a weapons research and testing company, hmm. and so they were offering him bukus of cash to be part of their team, but. This was in the 1960s, and Ritchie kind of had this uh, philosophy that perhaps a weapons testing facility might not be the place he would want to end up in. And so he turned it down. Although uh, we, we just mentioned Sandia National Laboratories uh, a short time ago on a podcast yep. about supercomputers. Yep. So instead, he went and joined a different lab, mm-hmm. Bell Labs, same place his dad had worked. Mm-hmm. And he joined in 1967. That's right. And uh, he was 
first put on a project where he was going to be working with a team from MIT, mm-hmm. uh, along with a fellow named Ken Thompson. Now, that's a very important name as well. Yes. Thompson and Richie together uh, have done a lot of work and laid that groundwork on computer science. Yes. They were originally working with this team from MIT. Thompson, by the way, also worked for Bell Labs. Uh, they were working with this team from MIT to build a new operating system called Multics, mm-hmm. M-U-L-T-I-C-S. However, halfway through the project, funding gets pulled. It, uh, it just decided the project wasn't moving fast enough or it wasn't going to budget. At any rate, mm-hmm. for some mm-hmm. reason or another, the project was, was trashed. And uh, Richie and Thompson were a little put off by this because they wanted to build an operating system that would support their programming efforts across multiple platforms. And that was a real problem because back in these days, in the 60s, a lot of these computers had proprietary operating systems that worked only upon that computer. Mm-hmm. So the machine and the operating system were married together. You didn't find the same operating system across multiple types of machines. Kind of the way you could argue uh, Apple works, mm-hmm. you know, because the Apple OS and the hardware are so closely aligned. Right, right. Um, now, did you mention who had been funding Multics? I did not. That would be the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA. Oh, gosh, I, that Again. name sounds familiar. Yeah. So. Since since Multics gets pulled, they decided they wanted to continue and try and build their own operating system. Mm-hmm. Now, there's something else I wanted to mention about Multics, though. Sure. Uh, was it, it was a time-sharing system, mm. uh, which means that you go and hang out there and have a nice vacation. <laughs> no. no. It means that you have multiple terminals that hook up to a centralized computer and that uh, as you are working on stuff, you get time allotted to you to access the computer's processing power. Yeah. So when you're working on it, that means nobody else is. But although the way these time-sharing systems work is that it would switch back and forth so quickly as to seem like everyone's working simultaneously. Yeah. But in truth, if you were to really divide up the time, very specific moments would be allocated to each user, depending on how many users there are for that particular system. Yeah, but it was it was single tasking. Yes. Um, and something else to note, too, is that uh, this was in a time when um, the programmer would need to create a series of punched cards. Yes. To to uh, to put this into the machine. Right. So your programming is done on punched cards and then you give it to someone to uh, compile for you and put into the machine. So once you're done writing the program, you hand off the deck of cards and go work on something else. Right. And, uh, and then the, through the, the compiling process, you find out whether or not your program works. Exactly. So the, so the programmer, Dennis Ritchie, realized that there are important things going on here. He wanted to change. Yes. He wanted to uh, have more of an impact. He wanted to feel like he was more engaged with the process. He also felt like um, he wanted to work with other people collaboratively on mm-hmm. the computer system. Um, and, uh, you know, these were things that uh, influenced his and, and Ken Thompson's decision-making where they wanted to do with this next operating system. So Thompson starts to work on this, and he starts to build this operating system using assembly language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's the problem. Assembly language just did not give the full amount of control that they needed to build out an operating system that could manage all the data across all the the different parts of this operating system. Because you got to remember, the operating system handles data that's coming from user input. It's handling data from the file system, from, from any storage that 
is connected to this computer. Uh, it has to handle the data that comes out of the processing after mm-hmm. the CPU has processed it. There's a lot of different moving pieces here. Well, virtually moving pieces. Yeah. Uh, or, or pieces that are virtual. Anyway, there are a lot of pieces. And so, <laughs> and so the problem was that the assembly language was not sophisticated enough to do this in an elegant way. So, if the assembly language isn't doing it, what's your solution? Well, if you're Dennis Ritchie, your solution is build a new programming language. Yeah, the uh, the assembly language was so close to the kernel, now, yes. to, to the operating system, that, or to the, um, I'm sorry, to the hardware, that it just yeah. made life really difficult. Yeah. And so he, uh, what his solution uh, didn't take you much farther away, but it was far enough away that it made a big difference in the way you would write. Right. At the programs. time that he developed, and, and the language he developed was the C programming language. At the time that he developed that, that was considered a high-level programming language. Today, we would not say that. We would yeah. say it's a much lower level because there are higher-level programming languages that have been developed since then. But at the time, it was considered a high-level programming language, meaning that it was a, a further step out from the physical layer of the computer. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting. Like, first, before he did that, they started to think about using Fortran mm-hmm. to try and create the Unix operating system. By the way, Unix, by the way, was originally spelled U-N-I-C-S, but because we pronounce that Unix, they just replaced the C-S with an X eventually. Uh, so that's why it's spelled U-N-I-X. Um Anyway, and it was a play off the Multics name that was w- what they were working on before. Mm-hmm. So they tried to use Fortran. Well, Fortran was an, is a programming language that was really, really well suited for scientific applications. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was too limited for them. So they uh, abandoned using Fortran. There were a few other options, but they were, again, meant for very specific applications. And they wanted something more general. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what... Richie did was he took uh, he looked at a programming language that Thompson had developed called the B programming language B as in boy, uh, which depending upon which theory you're reading could have been named after his wife or a different programming language. Anyway, uh, Richie took that and then he I thought he got stung on the day that he uh, by wrote a B. it yeah by B and yeah, then said there mm. you go could have been who knows uh, I'll get Thompson on the phone we'll have a chat. Chris and I have a lot more to say about Dennis Ritchie, but first, let's take a quick break. So <laughs> Ritchie, uh, he ended up taking, looking at the B programming language, and then he developed his own programming language called C. Mm-hmm. And again, the only reason that he built the C programming language, or at least the original intent, was just so they could build Unix. And... It's kind of uh, important to realize that because I think, based upon everything I've read, and granted, this is all from secondhand information. It wasn't something that Dennis Ritchie wrote himself. It feels like he never knew how extensive this language would go throughout the computer field. Mm -hmm. He was doing it for a very practical purpose. He needed a different language in order to build the operating system they wanted to have. Right. So... He, he he never really realized at the time that C programming language was going to become such a huge uh, uh, fundamental part of computer science. If he had, maybe he would have felt the pressure a bit more. <laughs> well, actually, uh, in, in a way, he didn't need to feel as pressured. Um, it's good, maybe, that he uh, that he was sort of divorced from that. Um, 
See, he was he was trying to use this uh, this old machine that they had at Bell Labs. It's mm-hmm. a it was a digital equipment corporation, also known as DEC, PDP seven. Um, and Unix, you know, they, they put Unix on that machine, or that was the point of, of creating Unix, was to operate this machine, but also to operate others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't long uh, after that, after they were doing this, that they uh, they got a PDP-11 yep. computer. Um, and the nice thing about Unix was it was computer independent. So they would they would be able to use Unix on multiple different uh, computers, not just that one particular machine. Right. So, um, you know, they they were able to to migrate Unix and run it on that other machine and use the programming language C to write software for it. Yeah, this this was a fairly new idea. Unix was yeah. not the first operating system that could be used on different machines, but it was one of the first. Well, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was going to say, uh, if you'll remember, we uh, not long ago, uh, a few weeks ago, we did a, a podcast about um, the beginnings of the internet, and mm-hmm. one of the ch- the first challenges, and 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 those guys were working on uh, on these challenges about the same time as uh, Richie and Thompson were working on their uh, trying to solve these problems. Um, they had multiple computers in, in different locations, and they all used a different operating system. Right. So, you know, these these uh, computer pioneers were doing something very important. They've realized that this is just a pain in the neck. Yeah. And uh, you have to find ways to uh, get computers on the same operating system, running the same programming lam- language, ta- talking to each other in the same protocol in order to get them to work more efficiently. Well, and also the idea behind this is that for programmers, it makes things way easier oh, because yes. otherwise, if you're a programmer and you're going into programming, you had to learn how to navigate specific operating systems for specific machines, mm-hmm. which meant that you might be an expert on two, maybe, or three machines max, two, right. three different types of machines. Right. But then you get introduced to another one and the operating system might be completely foreign to you because each one had its own. Mm-hmm. The approach that that uh, Richie and Thompson had meant that the same operating system could be found across multiple different machines. You mm-hmm. could just learn that one, and once you've learned that one, you're good to go. Yeah, you can program for all sorts of machines, which was a revolutionary development in computer science. You know, it's easy for us to forget that now because we're so used to that world. Even though, in some ways, the old world is kind of coming back with. Various manufacturers making very proprietary approaches to things so that you can't, you know, the methodology you use to work on one set of devices doesn't work on another set. We're mm-hmm. starting to see that again now. But for a long time, it was this philosophy of let's develop something that's going to work across the entire landscape of computers so that way, uh, you know, people can really concentrate on mastering programming and not have to worry about mastering it for just one set of type of compu- computational device, whether it's a computer or handheld device, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the development of Unix. And uh, it, it got it, – it's hard to explain the impact of this operating system. Part of the reason it had such a huge impact had to do – with the constraints that AT&T was under because you had you know AT&T they're the the head of what Bell Labs was yeah the parent part company of, the parent company of Bell Labs uh, they the reason why Unix one of the reasons why Unix worked so well is that it ended up being distributed across various research facilities and universities yeah 
And the reason why it was distributed for free is because AT&T legally could not sell this operating system. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that at the time when this was going on, AT&T was a telephone monopoly in the United States. Mm -hmm. And as a telephone monopoly. Virtual monopoly, anyway. Essentially a monopoly. They don't have to be the only player to be a monopoly. They have to be the only mega major player. Yeah, and they certainly were. And so they were essentially a monopoly in the United States. And because they were, they had to operate under what is called a consent decree. And that consent decree meant that they could not branch into another industry like computers because they already held a monopoly over another industry. So they could not, by law, sell this operating system. So instead, they distributed it freely to these research facilities and universities, mm-hmm. which, uh, and they also, uh, offered up a license, which allowed these, these different institutions to take the operating system and tweak it to their own needs. So, Unix ended up propagating across a wide array of educational uh, organizations and other institutions and became a solid foundation for students who were interested in programming because now they suddenly had access to this operating system platform that they didn't have access to before, and it was free. So Mm -hmm. there was no cost to the students or to the universities, and it meant that the whole field of computer science accelerated Exponentially, because there was suddenly access to, to very sophisticated tools that there wasn't before. So we started to see a lot more people going into programming. Uh, eventually, this actually uh, led to uh, uh, Richie writing a book, uh, co-writing a book, I should say. Mm-hmm. And that book is the C programming language, but it's frequently referred to as the K&R book. And it's called K&R after the last names of the two authors. Uh, so Dennis Ritchie is the R. The K is Brian Kernigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so if you've ever heard anyone or if you are a programmer, you think of the K&R book as being one of those sacred texts that <laughs> that everyone values. If, if you've talked to a programmer and you've heard this uh, phrase, that's what it refers to is the C programming language. I remember um, uh, Linus Torvalds talked about the K&R book, like being yeah. a big influence on him when he was getting into programming. And uh, it's widely praised as a very accessible book on the subject of programming. And in part of that, it's because the C programming language itself is very relatively simple. Mm-hmm. It's got a very simple grammar and syntax and is, is pared down to just the bare necessities not the song from the Jungle Book. I didn't sing it. It's going through my head already. I, yeah, I mean, but anyway, it's, head, it's, yes. it's pared down, so it's very it, it's it's very spare. Right. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be that way, so that sure. it doesn't take up a lot of space, and everything runs really smoothly and quickly on a machine. We have a bit more we want to talk about as far as Dennis Ritchie goes, and so we will do that as soon as we come back from this quick break. So, uh, interestingly enough, AT&T releases Unix out, right? Well, years later, they were no longer um, held under the consent decree. Turns mm-hmm. out AT&T got a little bit of a uh, – they had a little breakup. 
<laughs> for themselves. Breaking up is hard to do. All over the place. Uh, and lots of other companies came out of this whole AT&T thing. Well, once that happened, they said, hey, you know what? We want Unix again. So they started to try we and... We want our language back. Yeah, they tried... Operating systems. They tried to... Yeah, they, exactly. They tried to reestablish their proprietary hold over Unix. Right. As a result of that, it sort of helped... First of all, Unix being distributed throughout universities, that, that kind of started that seed of an idea of open source. Right. This idea of code that is uh, created and then distributed freely, and then people can actually manipulate that code under certain specific circumstances. Right. And so that's kind of planted that seed. Well, once AT&T started to try and grab that back, that seed really started to blossom. And, uh, and that's... Pro- more or less what prompted Richard Stallman to create the GNU project, G-N-U. Mm-hmm. And GNU's acronym stands for, it's a recursive acronym, it stands for GNU's Not Unix. Yes. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, a uh, it wasn't to dismiss what Ritchie and Thompson had done. It was more about the whole... It was more about the ownership, not yes, the, the exactly. creation of the... Yeah, yeah, it was the corporate side, not the programming side that was sort of... that prompted that. Um, but Unix has turned out to be a really versatile and uh, important operating system. And, and it, it provides the kernel for a lot of... or sometimes literally the kernel for a lot of other operating systems, including stuff that's found on web servers mm-hmm. across the Internet. Uh, Linux is not a direct derivative of Unix, but it is... Inspired, inspired by, by informed yes. by Unix. And it's and its very name, you can, it's sort of an homage. Yeah. Of course, so, it's, it's a play on uh, Linus Torvald's name, right. because Linus and Linux, but if the X, you can tell, is... Yeah. Yeah, so so Give Linux because everyone always gets on me whenever I say that Linux essentially comes from Unix, but I don't mean that Unix was manipulated to become Linux so much as Unix, Linus Torvalds used Unix as a blueprint yeah. for building what would become Linux. It's a spiritual relative, yes, rather yes. than a, a literal. Uh, but Unix point. also provides the foundation for other operating systems. It was what Windows was built on for ages. Uh, it is the foundation of Mac OS X and iOS. If you mm-hmm. were to actually dive into the Mac OS X operating system, you would uh, find that it is based off the Berkeley distribution of Unix, mm-hmm. which is also called BSD 4.2. Yep. Um, so, I mean, it's everywhere. And then not only that, but the C programming language ended up inspiring other computer scientists to develop programming languages that were kind of a, an evolution of C, because mm-hmm. ultimately there are other ways of programming computers, uh, but the the philosophy behind C programming pervades a lot of those languages, including sure. object-oriented languages like uh, C++ or Java, um, uh, Python, Ruby. Those are sort of uh, derivatives. Um, and they're both of those are designed to be very simple to use as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think spiritually, if you will, again, to use that um, the ideas that uh, Richie and, and a lot of his uh, – Colleagues, if you will, across different uh, companies. Um, basically, a lot of the ideas that they came up with, things that they said, you know what, computing should be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of unspoken tenets. Uh, they kind of stuck around. I think people have gone, you know what, these guys had something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've inspired a lot of people, uh, especially people like uh, 
Dennis Ritchie have inspired people to to emulate those and improve upon that work. Um, and a lot of the hardware that we see out there is built upon or, or with this C programming language. Mm-hmm. So that's the layer that exists on top of the actual physical hardware. It's you know they've created uh, the functionality through the C programming language, mm-hmm. and Ritchie has been recognized multiple times. Uh, with awards and and various uh, uh, accolades, um, I've got a list of them. If you would yeah. like to hear some of them, well, that, that's the funny thing is, uh, I was going to say you might wonder why. Uh, if this is the first time you've heard of Dennis Ritchie, you might say, "Well, he's done a lot for computing." Yeah, I mean, he's really influenced people all over the world. Mm-hmm. Why have we not really heard about him? And he's he is sort of a, a he was sort of a private guy. He yeah. um, a very hard worker. He'd come in at noon. Uh, leave in the middle of the afternoon, then go home and work until three in the morning sometimes. Yep. Um, not the kind of person that uh, spent a lot of time on a road show uh, appearing in the media you know, to show off what he'd done. He wanted to improve on what he'd done and just kept working hard. But they did. He was recognized, you, as yeah. you say, by yeah. by many people and got some very prestigious awards. Yeah, in 1983, he received, along with Thompson, the Turing Award mm-hmm. for their work with operating systems. So, of course, named after... Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've done a full podcast about him as well. You should listen to that one. It's an interesting story. Um, in 1990, he received uh, the Richard W. Hamming Medal, along with Thompson, mm-hmm. from my favorite organization in the world, just for the way I get to oh, say its no. acronym, IEEE, <laughs> or I-E-E-E. Uh, I never get tired of that. I know I... all of you do. In, in 97, uh, Richie and Thompson were made fellows of the Computer History Museum, which I still want to go to. I have yet to, to make it out to uh, to Silicon Valley to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, in 99, uh, Richie and Thompson again, they received the National Medal of Technology from, uh, from Bill Clinton. Uh, in 2005, uh, he received the Achievement Award from the Industrial Research Institute. And in 2011, Richie and Thompson received the Japan Prize for Information and Communications. So he's been recognized uh, officially mm-hmm. uh, from various types of organizations multiple times. Although, of course, you could argue that these organizations are really only famous within the niche of computer programmers, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is fairly that's that's fair to say. It's not yeah. like it's not like they are thrust into the public eye like an Apple keynote always is. Yeah. Um, but yes, it is very clear that Richie played a pivotal role, really. Yeah. To the development of computer science in in our modern age, and that without his work, it would be very very different. And oh, yes. we might not even have things like the smartphones that we use today, at least not in the form factor that we're used to and the, the functionality that we're used to. Mm-hmm. It might, you know, it's not to say that something else wouldn't have come along, but there's no way of knowing what that would have been. So um, our hat is off to you, Mr. Ritchie. Uh, mm-hmm. Our world is is better for you having worked in it. And so uh, I'm glad that we took this time to really recognize him and, and talk about his life and his work Especially to you guys out there who may have not been familiar with him. Um, And if you're interested in programming, if you want to get into it, uh, the the book that he co-wrote is considered one of the the texts that you have to read. Right. And it's and every single programmer I've ever talked to has praised it for its readability. Yeah. Saying that it's actually for a book about programming languages. (laughs) 
Very easy to read. Yeah. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that classic episode. It was uh, great to focus on a specific person. We rarely did that back in the early days of Tech Stuff. We would once in a while do a spotlight on a specific person as opposed to a technology or once in a while a company. Uh, but I do it much more frequently these days. So maybe there's someone in technology you think I should focus on for a, a full episode. If you have suggestions like that, you can pop on over to the email uh, client of your choice and type in the two-line techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. There you're going to find an archive of all of our previous episodes. In fact, you might want to do a search just to make sure I haven't already done an episode about the particular person you have in mind. And you can also find links to our presence on social media. So you can contact me through Facebook or through Twitter. And you'll also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. And we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 